Pastor Philip had asked me if, if there's anything I would like him to preach about while he was here, and I said, he's welcome to take up the, the Eighth Commandment in my place, although, to be honest, I said, we've been in Exodus for a year now, and the people might enjoy a little break from that. So he uh, said he would be glad to do some New Testament and bring some First John, so I trust that that was a blessing. But we do get to get back today into the book of Exodus and studying the law of God given to us in the Ten Commandments. There are some who wonder not only why we would spend time studying the law in the Old Testament, but particularly why this much time, why we would dedicate, uh, we're going to do at least 12 weeks uh, on the Ten Commandments because two of the commands we've done two weeks each on, and, and they'll look to the New Testament and read what Paul says that we are not under law, but we're under grace. We have died to the law with Christ. Why then would we spend so much time? And that's a good question, and I think it has a very good answer. And I want to suggest one way that we can think about the law as we read it. And in fact, it's one way that we can think about each individual law that we read. We can read these, and we can think about them in three ways, as law, as prophecy, and as wisdom. You might hear those and you might think those are the three major categories of literature in the Old Testament. The Old Testament has a section that we call the law of God. There's the wisdom literature. And then there's the prophecy at the end. Well, that's the same three categories we can use to think about any particular law. So we we have one, uh, the Eighth Commandment, for instance, that we're going to read today and study today. Uh, Thou shalt not steal. We could think about that as law. Now, to read the law as law, we'd say that's the category where we are not under law. We are in the new covenant administered to us by Christ. We're not in the Sinai covenant that God gave through Moses. And so uh, we don't receive the law quite the same way that Israel did. We are not under law. But that doesn't mean that the law is therefore useless to us or of no benefit because we can also think of law as prophecy. Each of the laws that we read, including the Eighth Commandment, is edifying to us in that it is meant to lead us to Christ. It's a prophecy that looks forward, and we read that Jesus is the one who has fulfilled the law. And so law is given to teach us about Jesus, both his person and his work, that he is the one who perfectly fulfills the law on our behalf. It also leads us to Christ in that the law is given to show us our need for Christ. And so we can't help but read the law and and measure ourselves by it and find ourselves wanting. And as it does that, that, that's a good and a useful thing for us because that is meant to lead us to Christ, to say we must not trust in our own righteousness, in our own ability to keep God's law. And in that sense, it is a mirror. It shows us our sin and it leads us then, takes us by the hand and it leads us to Jesus as our Savior. And so law functions as prophecy. And then thirdly, we can think the law also functions for us as wisdom. Wisdom is meant to teach us about God. It's meant to demonstrate and reveal to us the character of our God. The law reflects the character of the one who has given the law. And so each law teaches us something about the character of and the nature of the God who gives the law. It teaches us something about the kind of life that is pleasing to God. Even though we don't see ourselves as being under this as a law, 
It's certainly not given for our salvation. Nevertheless, we can read these laws and say this is law that God himself gave to his people. What does that teach us then about the kind of life that is pleasing to God, about the things that God values, about the character that he is looking to build into his people? In fact, these give us a picture then of what it means for us to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, all of our soul, all our strength, all our mind, and our neighbor as ourselves. And we do these things that God has given us. So we don't read them as law as law. It's not given that we can earn our salvation by keeping them. It's not meant to make us good enough to win God's favor. But it nevertheless is given for us to be useful, for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting us, for training us in righteousness, that we might know the Lord, know his word, and know how he would have us to live. So I, I want to read it for us before we get too far gone. I want to read uh, chapter 20, verses 1 through 21, the book of Exodus. So let me ask if you would join me in standing today for the reading of God's holy word. This is the book of Exodus, chapter 20, starting in verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning, the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us, and we will listen. But do not let God speak to us, lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear. For God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off, while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Let's pray one more time. Father, this is your good and holy word that you have so graciously given to us to make us wise, to lead us to Christ, to show us our own hearts 
that we might know our sin and thus be even more thankful for our Savior. We ask that you would use your word today for the edification of your people, for the growth of your church, for the conformity unto Christ-likeness of each one of us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. There is an old TV show that I used to enjoy watching called Friends. I know it's been a while now since that was on. One of my favorite episodes of Friends has Ross and Chandler staying in a hotel together, and and they realize that the cost of the room was quite a bit more than they expected it was going to be. And as a result of that, they, they make a plan that they are going to recoup their expenses by taking as many complimentary items from the hotel as they can possibly find. And so, of course, they, they begin with some of the obvious ones, the, the shampoo bottle, the, the conditioner bottle, the, the bars of soap, the little plastic cups, and perhaps the, the sweeteners and the coffee things that are there for you to use. They range a bit beyond that, and they collect as many USA Todays as they can different pieces of fruit that are available in a basket in the lobby. They call down to the desk and ask for all the complimentary toiletries that are offered, toothbrush, razor, toothpaste, anything at all. He says, I I can't remember what I might have forgotten. Can you just bring everything that you have? And and then they they continue their quest. They go a little bit further uh, until Chandler comes back and he has taken the salt shaker out of the lobby. And Ross stops him and he says, wait, wait, that's over the line. And he, said, he, he has thought about this and he says, you can take the salt, but not the salt shaker. And so it gets a little more complex and they decide, you can't take the lamp, but you can take the light bulb. And you can't take the remote control for the TV, but you can take the batteries out of the remote control. And and they delve into this deep philosophical conundrum over what constitutes stealing and what is simply taking that which the hotel owes you. Well, it it strikes me that oftentimes when we think about the Eighth Commandment, thou shalt not steal, that's actually kind of the way our discussions go. That, That the whole discussion is bound up in where is the line? What constitutes stealing, and what is just sort of taking that which is expected for people to take. And so we we have our little uh, conundrums. What about taking a few office supplies from work? What if we do a little bit of personal business while we're at work and while we're on the clock? What about condiment packets? How many are you allowed to take at the restaurant? What about borrowing some neighbor's Wi-Fi signal. We used to think about, you know, getting the splitter for the cable to get free TV. I don't know if you have cable anymore. What about borrowing someone's Netflix password? Borrowing someone's Prime account? Borrowing Hulu passwords? Whatever it may be. What if you ask for a water cup at a restaurant and then fill it with soda at the soda machine? And all our discussions are, are, where is the line? Which one of these things is actually stealing and thus forbidden? And which one is, you know, 
just a little thing, no big deal, really. After all, we all draw the line, and different people are going to draw those lines in different places. We all have the big things. We're not going to rob banks. We're not sneaking food into our pockets in the grocery store and hoping no one notices. But maybe eating a few grapes is okay while we're shopping. That's the way we, we deal with this. What about calling in sick if you're not really sick? We all have these moral issues that we're thinking through, but the reality is that's not how the Bible approaches the commandment, thou shalt not steal at all. That's the way we tend to think about it, is if we're going to really obey it, we have to decide where the line is, and we have to be certain we're not going to cross it. But that's, that's not the Bible's approach to this issue. The commandment here is not designed simply to help us determine where that line is. Instead, what the Bible does for us is it, it, it flips our thinking entirely on its head, and it shows us a completely better way. Let me try to explain. Let's, let's think about first the, all the commandments. What's wrong with stealing? Anyway, why would that be one of the Ten Commandments? After all, if we look at these Ten Commandments, we might be, it'd be reasonable for us, I think, to suppose that God has given us these Ten Commandments that are separate from the rest of the law, right? These were on the tablets of stone. These were written by the finger of God himself. There's something unique and special about these Ten Commandments that God gives Moses here on the mountain. They, they seem to summarize in ten laws sort of the foundation of the covenant between God and Israel. There's something that, that is, is significant and unique about these Ten Commandments. And we see it clearly with some of them. I mean, the first commandment, you shall not have any other gods before God. That's obviously significant. Even the second one, you shall not have graven images. That's obviously significant. Uh, not taking the Lord's name in vain, that's important. We recognize that murder and adultery, these are big issues. It, it's obvious why those would be in the Ten Commandments. But what about this one? Thou shalt not steal. Would you consider that to be on the same level as the others? What's wrong with stealing anyways? Well, one thing we need to say, if you remember way back when on the first commandment, we said something that Martin Luther pointed out. He said, you never break any of the Ten Commandments without first breaking the first commandment. So that first commandment, that thou shalt have no other gods before God, is so foundational to all of them that you can never break any other commandment unless first you have broken the first commandment. Right? So you never dishonor your parents unless first at a deeper level, you have put something else in your life above God. You are now taking instructions, as it were, from something or someone else in your life that is more significant to you, that you're giving more weightiness to, than you are to God. And, and that is what will cause you to, to start living a way that you're breaking the other commandments. That God is no longer the ultimate authority. We're not obeying his word. And it's the same with stealing, right? We never get to that place where we're stealing from somebody or somewhere or something, no matter how big or small, unless first we've broken the first commandment. Unless something or someone else has taken the position of preeminence and authority in our heart such that we're listening to them and obeying them and honoring them more than God. 
We're submitting to something else rather than submitting to God. After all, why? Why would we steal? It's easy, isn't it, to, to think, I mean, we want to be richer, we want to be happier, we want to have more convenience, we want to be more well thought of by others, more respected. Maybe we just want to be happier. We just want a little more glory for ourselves, to glorify ourselves. See, we've broken that first commandment. We've put something or someone else on the throne. And, and probably most of the time, it's us. And I think of that, that very simple little illustration. If you've ever seen the little booklet, The Four Spiritual Laws, that's so commonly used for evangelism, that gives you this little illustration. It has a circle that defines your life, and there's a throne in the middle. It says everyone has a throne that they enthrone and worship something in life. And for the believer, it should be God who's on that throne. It should be God whose word we listen to and submit to, whose authority we obey. But it shows us for, for the unbeliever, you have the, your life and you have the throne of your life, and it's you yourself who's on the throne. And don't we recognize that that's often true for us as believers as well? That if we look at where the functional authority is, the functional highest person in our lives, it's usually us rather than the Lord. And it's usually, therefore, our word that we're listening for and doing what pleases us first rather than what we know is pleasing to God. I would say anytime we feel that temptation to steal and, and we go into this little mode of like, well, where is that line? It's usually because we have first put ourselves on the throne of our lives. But what happens when God is on the throne? It's the character of God that defines the eighth command. Right? The reason that stealing is wrong is because God is on his throne and the character of God is what determines his law. I want to I point to three aspects of God's character that inform this law. God is just, he's sovereign, and he's generous. First of all, because God is just, therefore stealing is wrong. You see, if, if each command reflects something of the character of God, well, stealing is wrong in part because God is a perfectly just God. God is perfectly just, and therefore God hates stealing. Now, he hates when we steal. He hates when people steal from us. And, and to be honest, I think there's something really comforting in that. Don't, don't you long for justice? I mean, isn't, when you see injustice in the world, isn't it just infuriating to you? And there's some people who are just wired for for justice. And if you have that kind of sort of wiring built into you, isn't it just infuriating to, to see the amount of injustice that goes on in this world, the way that poor people are so often trampled on, so often get less than rich people. They, they suffer the, the short end of the stick of favoritism. And they suffer, they suffer extortion, bribery, usury, unfair interest rates. There's so many ways that, that people, the less powerful, the marginalized, the weak, the poor, suffer unjustly in this world. And, and it can be infuriating just to think about. They're unjustly deprived of what ought to be theirs. And so it's comforting to me to look at this and to know God hates that. 
because God is just. He's perfect in his justice. He treats people equally, and he treats people fairly, and he hates it when a person steals from someone else. And that is the foundation of this command. That is why stealing is wrong. And if we were to get philosophical and ask, well, why is stealing wrong? It's not, it, it's not fundamentally wrong because of the injustice that's done to somebody. It's not fundamentally wrong because we are inconveniencing somebody. At, at its root, stealing is wrong because the character of God defines it. And God is just. And therefore, whether you're stealing a million dollars or one dollar, stealing is wrong. Because it's not about the worth of what's taken. It's not about the level of inconvenience that you're causing to somebody. If you say, oh, it's from such and such a huge international business, they will never notice. Well, it doesn't matter. It's wrong not because of the inconvenience caused, it's wrong because of the character of God is what it is. And the truth is, stealing is first and foremost an offense against God. It's not first an offense against the person you've stolen from, or the person who is suffering the injustice. It's the first against God. If you look at Proverbs chapter 30, verses 7 and 8, there's a prayer there. It's from uh, Agur, the man of God, and he prays this prayer to the Lord. He says, Give me neither poverty nor riches, which itself is an amazing thing to pray. Give me neither poverty nor riches, lest if I have too much, I will forget you, or if I have too little, I will be tempted to steal and so dishonor the name of my God. You see what, what happens if he steals? He says, don't, don't give me poverty, I will be tempted to steal. And notice, wouldn't that be the justifiable kind? He's not just stealing to line his pockets. He's not just trying to get a little extra for himself. He says, I, I'm so poor that I'm stealing necessities. And yet, he says, if I'm tempted to steal even for necessities, lest I profane the name of my God. Stealing profanes the name of God because it is an attack on the character of God. God is just. God is our provider. He's promised that he's our provider. Right? That's what Hebrews 13 says. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. You see, that, that's the promise that God gives to say he is our provider. Say, we don't need to steal because it's an offense against him. That's taking into our hands what he says is in his hands, our provision. It's, it's taking away the trust that we're to have in him. We're not being content with what he provides for us. And this is leading right into the next point. Not only is God just, but God is sovereign. And because God is sovereign, therefore, we can be content with what we have. We can be content with what we have. That's why, see, stealing also it gets into this issue of the sovereignty of God. Because stealing is saying, in effect, I don't have what I need. Or maybe I don't have what I want. God has not provided for me in a way that lives up to my expectations. He's not provided for me in a way that, that checks all my needs of what I want or need or desire to have in this life, and therefore I'm going to take it into my own hands. Well, that is an offense against the sovereignty and the providence 
and the provision of God. Now this is why talking about the sovereignty of God is not just a sort of a dry theological discussion of our distinctives. It's really practical. It's really practical. And if you've ever gone through suffering, you know how practical it is. If you've ever been tempted to steal because of poverty, because you really feel that, that these are needs, these are not wants, these are needs that are not being met, then maybe you know how practical these implications are for daily life. Because the sovereignty of God is a discussion that says not only does God uphold the universe by the word of his power, such that it's in him that we live and move and have our being and he is in sovereign control over every last thing. That's true, but it also speaks to our lives that he is sovereign over the circumstances of our daily life, that he provides for us, his people, what is necessary for us to have. He orders all the circumstances of your life, your joys and your disappointments. He provides all that you need so that you can trust him. When he withholds something, he's withholding that out of his sovereignty, out of his providence, out of his wisdom. And he's withholding it, and we can trust in that, that he's not withholding it out of, out of spite or out of anger, but out of the love of a father who knows what is best. There's a question in the Heidelberg Catechism, and it simply says this, What do you believe when you say, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth? Those first lines of the Apostles' Creed that we say almost weekly here in church. We're going to say it a little bit later today. What do you, what do you mean by that? And here's the answer. Listen to this answer. That the eternal Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who out of nothing created heaven and earth and everything in them, who still upholds and rules them by his eternal counsel and providence, is my God and Father because of Christ the Son. And I trust God so much that I do not doubt he will provide whatever I need for body and soul and will turn to my good whatever adversity he sends upon me in this sad world. God is able to do this because he is almighty God and he desires to do this because he is a faithful father. Now that's a lot being said, but, but you hear the explanation of, of what are we confessing when we confess I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. It's saying that's not simply a dry theological statement of faith. It's saying that is speaking to the very intimate faith and trust that we place in God, that he is our Father. That the very same God who created everything from nothing is also our Father, and he desires to care for us. He's able to do it and he desires to do it because he is a faithful father to us. Now see what, what's going on here is the Bible is saying you shall not steal, but it's taking us so far back from that to saying what's happening in our hearts when we are tempted to steal? And let's, let's deal with the heart issue because what happens in our heart is often a lack of trust, the lack of daily, practical, rubber-meets-the-road faith in the providence and the provision of God. And what the Bible is challenging us then is to live as sons and daughters of this God. 
right? To live as those who can trust him, who can put their faith in him, who can gladly and joyfully know with great confidence that he has our best interest at heart, right? That he loves us and he desires to care for us. And if that is true, where is the temptation to steal? If we are trusting in God, that will take away the temptation to steal on our own behalf. Now, God is just. God is sovereign. Thirdly, God is also generous, so we can be generous. And this is where the Bible is just turning our, our expectations on its head, saying we, God is generous, therefore we can be generous. Um, Jerry Bridges summarizes three basic attitudes people can have towards their stuff towards possessions. He says the first attitude is, what's yours is mine, I'll take it. It's the attitude of the thief. The second attitude is, what's mine is mine, I'll keep it. That may sound like a neutral attitude, but it's really worldly. The third attitude is this, what's mine is God's, I'll share it. That's the attitude of generosity. Of, of godly generosity. And that's the attitude that the Bible calls us to. And this is where the Bible now really begins to diagnose our hearts. Because when we read this Eighth Commandment, it's not, again, it's not just about finding where the line is. It's not just about learning to resist the temptation to steal. It's also talking about the disposition of our hearts. The disposition of a heart that would even get into that temptation. Because you know, you could obey the Eighth Commandment. You could never steal. You could never take something that doesn't belong to you. And yet, you could still be very self-righteous. You could still be very greedy. You could still be completely materialistic. Where have we gotten ourselves? You can obey the commandment on the outside when your heart can be just as far from Christ as ever. See, the opposite of stealing is not not stealing. The opposite of stealing is joyful generosity with that which the Lord has provided for us. Think of Paul's admonition in Ephesians 4.28. Turn there if you've got your Bibles on you. Ephesians 4 and verse 28. Here's what Paul says. <clears throat> Ephesians 4.28. Let the thief no longer steal... But rather, let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him do honest labor with his hands, that he might have something to share with anyone who is in need. See, what he wants here is to move us not just from category one, what's yours is mine, I'll take it, into category two, what's mine is mine, I'll keep it. He wants to move us all the way into category three, what's mine is God's, I'll gladly and joyfully share it. Why? Because this chapter in Ephesians is all about what it means for us to walk with Christ as those who are being renewed in the image of God. That's what he says here. If we just back up to verse uh, 23, this is what we are to do, to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness, and in true holiness. See, it's possible to not be stealing and yet to have nothing to do with Jesus. And that's not obeying the command. 
And that's what happens so often when, when the extent of our discussion about stealing is simply about where's the line, right? We're trying to outwardly obey the command to externally not steal, and we want to make sure we draw the line in just exactly the right place. What are we doing? Well, we're trying to protect our own self-righteousness, right? We don't want any blemishes on our own record. We want to be able to sleep at night and feel good about ourselves, but... When your heart has truly been changed by Jesus, it's not just that you decide, I'm going to stop stealing, but the attitude and the disposition of your heart is completely flipped. So that now, it's not what's yours is mine, but now it's what mine, what's mine is actually God's. It's what he has given, and I will be generous with it. I will share with those who are in need. Because the context of Ephesians 4 is, is you are those now who have been rescued out of darkness. You are those who no longer live like the Gentiles. Right? Or as God might say in Exodus, you, you no longer live like the Egyptians. Now you're learning what it is to walk with God. Or as we might say, now we no longer live like typical Americans. Always out for number one, always trying to keep up with the Joneses, always living for themselves. Rather, now we are those who are being conformed into the image of our Savior in righteousness and in holiness. Paul says, this is the way you've learned Christ, being renewed in his holiness. See, even that paragraph ends saying, you are to be kind to one another, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Right? See, it, it's God's Actions towards us inform our actions towards others. He forgave us, so we forgive others. He has been generous to us, so we are generous to others. I want you to think for a moment about one of the most notorious thieves in the Bible. Just a wee little man, a wee little man was he, Zacchaeus. Was he not one of the most notorious thieves in all of the Bible? He was a tax collector. We know what the tax collectors of that day did. These were, were people who, who were not necessarily Romans, but they worked for the Romans. They, they collected taxes on behalf of the Romans. And it was just understood by the Romans that these tax collectors were allowed to be unscrupulous. They were allowed to take extra on top of the taxes that were actually owed in order to line their own pockets. If taxes were $10, they'd say you owe 20 and they'd pocket the extra 10 And they did that all the time. It's stealing. It's injustice. They were stealing from everybody, and that's why the tax collectors were so universally hated. These were people, some of them were among their own people, and yet they signed up to work for the Romans to steal from their own family and friends. They loved money so much that they turned on their own people just to get more of it. They were so completely captured by, by materialism and possessions and money. This is why they're so hated. In fact, uh, the Jewish Mishnah, one of the writings of the day, it said tax collectors aren't even human. They said it's okay to lie to a tax collector because lying to an animal is not a sin. That's the status these, these people had as just notorious thieves Zacchaeus was selfish, money-grubbing thief until Jesus found him one day. 
You remember the story? There was Zacchaeus up in a tree. Nobody would let him stand in front of them to see, despite the fact that he was very short. He still had to climb a tree. Until Jesus found him and he said, Zacchaeus, I'm going to your house today. And he invited himself over and they went and and they dined. They had a dinner party together. And Zacchaeus came out after the dinner party and he said, Jesus, I'm going to give half of my possessions to the poor. And I am going to restore fourfold to anyone that I defrauded. That's the whole story. Wouldn't you love to know what went on at that dinner table that night? Because something amazing happened. Zacchaeus encountered Jesus in a way that not merely taught him it was wrong to steal, but flipped his heart so radically on its head that he came out and, and went far beyond anything the law would have required of him. There was no requirement that, that if you've stolen now, you must give half of your possessions to the poor, that you must restore fourfold anyone who you've defrauded. And yet one encounter with Jesus, one experience of his grace towards sinful people so radically changes the heart of the thief that we can no longer continue stealing. It changes us into generous people who joyfully and gladly give. You see, here's the Bible's hope for thieves. And there is so much hope. Jesus was counted with thieves. He was crucified between two of them. And one of them was saved that very day. And here's all the hope is that that Jesus seeks out the guilty. You remember, Zacchaeus didn't even invite Jesus over to his house for dinner. Jesus invited Jesus over to Zacchaeus' house for dinner. He said, Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house. That's what Jesus does for us. He doesn't wait until we find him out of our own searching, out of our own looking, out of our own study. Jesus seeks out guilty thieves and he finds them. And he dines with them. And he communes with them. And he changes them. You see, if you are to hear Paul's admonition, let the thief no longer steal, but, but work. And then be generous. Have something to give to others, to those who are in need. And, and you hear that and you think, well, that's, that's easier said than done for a thief just to, to change his heart. How, how is your heart changed? Well, the, the story there in Luke 19, the story of Zacchaeus tells us, your heart is changed by communion with Christ, by an encounter with Jesus. We then can become a church of Zacchaeuses, a church filled with people who, at one point in our life, we were greedy, we were selfish, we were thieves, who were willing to try to get away with things, We didn't want to push the envelope, maybe, but willing to do what we could get away with when we once were lost, but now are saved. We once lived for ourselves, but now we live for Christ. We once loved money above everything else, but now love Jesus more than money. You see, Jesus is a savior of thieves. He not only forgives the sin of stealing, but he transforms the thief. He takes the thief and transforms him to a generous, loving, joyful giver, helper, lover of others who will give 
generously to the poor who sees his possessions no longer as what's yours is mine, not even as what's mine is mine, but now what's mine is God's. It's what God has generously given in his sovereignty, in his generosity. He has provided with me with, with more than I strictly need in order that I might now share, that I might now become a blessing to others, that I might now, like Zacchaeus, give to those who do not yet know the wonder and the beauty and the generosity of our Savior. That's my prayer for us, and that's what I believe it will mean for us to begin to obey this commandment. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for Christ. We are so thankful that he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he made himself nothing. And he took the form of a servant in order to serve us, in order to take the basin and the towel that he might wash the feet of those who did not know what it was to be loved. And we thank you for Christ. We pray that your word will continue by the power of your spirit to work in our hearts this week, that you will continue opening the eyes of our hearts to see the depth of our sin, but even more to see the beauty of our Savior, that we might love him more deeply, more joyfully, more gladly. We pray these things in his name.